Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Reproductive coercion is any deliberate attempt to dictate a woman's reproductive choices or interfere with her reproductive autonomy. As GPs, we are likely each seeing patients who are being subject to reproductive coercion. But how do we identify them? And if we are able to identify them, how can we help? In today's episode, we'll speak to Annabelle Shoramimo, co-author of a recent BMJ practice article on reproductive coercion. And we'll also consider the art of paying attention with BMJ columnist John Warner. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP and clinical editor for the BMJ, and hopefully paying attention with me today are Jenny and Navjoit. Uh, hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. Hi, and uh, Navjoit, hi. Hello, I'm Navjoit Ladha. I'm a locum GP in London and a clinical editor for the BMJ. So, um, yeah, so should we get started with our, we've got two two things to talk about today. The first, um, we're going to have a chat about reproductive coercion. Um, and this stems from an article we published last year. And I guess thinking about how we're going to talk about this, I remember when, when the authors of this article pitched to us in the education team, we were all sort of shocked by how common um, the, the problem is, but also that it doesn't seem to get much attention. In fact, it's a sort of term that I don't think particularly familiar with um is that your uh, your experience uh, jenny i think this is a topic that is getting an increasing amount of attention i think it has been featured in films over the years um and was you know part of what happened and i won't try to spoil it but part of the sequence of events in the television series i may destroy you so i think it has gotten more attention recently. Um, but I have to say, this is not something that I have seen a lot in practice. And so hearing some of the rates reported by the um, authors of this article was also kind of shocking to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, should I, should I um, give some of those rates? So I think it's a difficulty here around, a lot of this is based on polling and um, uh, but, but one poll, which was carried out for the for a radio, BBC Radio 4 programme, um, they did a poll of 1,060 women between 18 and 44 in the UK, and they found that half of them had said they'd experienced some form of reproductive coercion. Um, and there's other data from the US, Australia, uh, and India, um, which give rates between sort of 8 and 32%. Mm. Um, so high. I mean, that's shocking, isn't it? It is absolutely shocking. I mean, I've I've you know, cared for a couple patients with kind of overt uh, trauma from sexual assault, which was clearly sexual assault. But it gets really tricky because there is, you know, whenever power dynamics in a relationship are involved, it's really tricky to understand, you know, things in that gray zone, like where do you go from, you know, normal, happy, kind of healthy conversations about your sexual desires to like 
getting into the realm of, you know, one person exerting a power or an influence on another to coercion along its way towards outright assault. Um, and I think the um, Annabelle who we, who I interviewed and who we listened to today really talked about this as a form of violence. This, this is a form of violence against a partner. Um, but kind of figuring out where on the spectrum someone might be in their relationship and trying to ask open-ended questions to support someone feeling comfortable disclosing their situation, I think is is the really tricky thing about this. That's right. I guess in, in practice, it's hard to know how and when to, to ask about these sorts of things, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, uh, as you were just talking, Jenny, I was just thinking about uh, sort of other types of uh domestic violence i suppose and sexual assault that we might hear about in a consultation or you know we might um there might be some clue that we might probe about a bit further in a consultation but that doesn't happen very often i think and you have to be really kind of alert and sort of thinking about these things which uh like all things in general practice is very difficult given time constraints and, and all the other pressures. And the other thing I was just thinking about as well is the kind of, um, I was just thinking, so my awareness of reproductive coercion has been more within, I guess, particular kind of cultural settings as well. So um, thinking about, uh, I, I think the films I saw when I was growing up, like Indian films, Bollywood films, you know, might have shown something about, um, about this and you know the kind of the the stereotype which I hope is kind of increasingly outdated of you know overbearing um in, a woman's overbearing in-laws um sort of exerting pressure about sort of reproductive choices and um and about sort of you know gender selection and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing um and so the, that that's the other thing is like there might be a danger of kind of assuming it happens to certain types of people as well not thinking about um about other groups i very much um agree with you on that and i think when we try to think about who is most at risk of ha you know experiencing reproductive coercion i think there's a tendency to think about categories of vulnerability and if we in an exam room are really only thinking about reproductive coercion when someone falls into one of those categories and we are only asking screening questions some of the time, then we're very likely to fall into, you know, patterns of assumptions and um, really only targeting those particular people to ask about it when in fact everybody is at risk for one reason or another. Um, and yet, you know, I, I'm not sure that so many GPs feel comfortable, you know, bringing this up as a part of their kind of routine screening or like as a routine part of their sexual history. Yeah. Um, let's give a few examples of what reproductive coercive behaviors are. Um, so here are a few that are listed in the table from in the article. Um, so we've got a psychological pressure to conceive or to continue a pregnancy or, or the converse. Um, so pressure um to use contraception or to be sterilized um for sex without use of contraception um threats of harming a woman or her children if she does not conceive or if she does not um use contraception uh and then contraceptive sabotage is another group here which is tampering with or forcibly removing um 
contraception, um, an example being, or a common example is um, stealthing, um, which is where a, a condom is removed um, without the knowledge of, of the woman. So so those are some examples. I think it is one of those um, terms which helps, I think, to, to have some examples. Yeah, absolutely. And there are a number of people who may be at higher risk of experiencing reproductive coercion in one of those forms. And so Annabelle and her co-authors helpfully provide a list. And there are a lot of them. So going through a few, women whose relationships with a partner or family are subject to an imbalance of power or control. Um, again, I would think that this applies to a very large spread of the population. Women who've experienced other kinds of violence, uh, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, or who've previously um, a bit experienced reproductive coercion. Women who've engaged in transactional sex, whose partner has other partners, younger women, adolescents, women with mental health problems, women who are at a socioeconomic disadvantage compared to their partner, who are unemployed, people who are socially isolated or who have limited access to social support systems, um, people from racially marginalized backgrounds, including migrants, um, those from cultural backgrounds that are patriarchal, which we've touched on a little bit. Um, and then women who don't, uh, similarly, women who don't speak the language of the country in which they're seeking medical help or services. People who attend frequently for emergency contraception might wave a flag that reproductive coercion is going. Uh, people who have unplanned pregnancies or um, also pregnant women who access health care um, well beyond the first trimester or or um, who conceal pregnancies. So again, I think my kind of top line reflection on that is that like that could apply to almost everybody. Yeah, that is a lot of uh, a lot of women. Uh, and I guess, you know, it, it sort of reflects that there are a lot of women who are potentially subject to kind of coercive control as well. And I guess it mirrors those behaviours. I do find it interesting that um, like this is almost this is going to affect women um, a lot more as a kind of potential uh, people who this is happening to. Uh, but um, the kind of highest profile example I can think of recently was from Bridgerton, mm. um, the first series of Bridgerton, where actually it was um, a woman who had reproductively coerced a man. So there's, um, you know, the the Duke and Duchess in the first in the first series, she essentially rapes him and has sex with him without his consent in order to become pregnant because she doesn't sort of he he doesn't want to have children. Um, but she sort of doesn't kind of agree with him. And so um, that's quite interesting. And I think in the article, they do say, you know, although, although women are um, sort of more affected, um, it, it could it could happen to anybody. That is such a good point. And yeah, also just, again, this is so tricky, like taking the Bridgerton example, right? Like I think the sex was consensual, but the ejaculation was not, right? Like, so, like, it's so tricky. Yeah. Um, but in yeah. any case, <laughs> let's turn to my interview with Annabelle to help us talk through this a little bit more, unpick some of these things and to um, understand what our role as GPs is.
Hello, good morning. Yes, I'm Dr. Annabelle Shomimo. So I'm a community sexual and reproductive health registrar based in Leicester. I'm also a PhD candidate um, at King's College London. And I also am co-founder of the charity Reproductive Justice Initiative. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming back to Deep Breath In. It's so great to have you back. This time, um, speaking a little bit more specifically about a great article that you've just written for the education section, this one on recognizing reproductive coercion. What are some of the risk factors that really make you worry that someone could be experiencing reproductive coercion? Yeah, so um, there are lots of things what we look at within sexual reproductive health generally where we say this person's a vulnerable person, a vulnerable adult. Um, so if they're at risk ready of other forms of intimate partner violence, um, whether that's physical, financial, um, then they may well be at risk of um, having reproductive coercion. There are a lot of different individuals who are not going to necessarily have a typical um patient Mm -hmm. and because reproductive coercion spans so many things from somebody interfering with your condom to stealthing where you just remove the condom during um, sex without the person's consent and obviously that places them at risk of pregnancy a wide range of people um, can be affected. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know what this might look like in a consultation um if we are seeing a patient and recognize a couple of these risk factors or if something, um, I don't know if she, for example, becomes tearful or seems upset when talking about reproductive choices and birth control, how how do we ask about this? Um, Recognizing that we don't want to push somebody away. Um, The example that we used in the BMJ article was about a patient called Samantha who essentially comes to the, um, contacts the GP um, and um, is out and is having a conversation um, outside and seemingly can't have it in the context of a home. So it's having to be kind of quiet. And then um, essentially when she attends the practice and attends with her partner there, um, and the GP has to ask the partner to leave. And then when the when when um, the GP asks about the contraception, she starts crying. Mm-hmm. So um, there's signs there that that patient isn't comfortable. Um, obviously, the partners come along. And I think the reason we chose this, this situation is because it's actually quite similar to that um, which we have experienced. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so it can present in many different ways um i think also something to note which we touch upon in the article is that we do um and a lot of the work around this issue we often talk about women um but it can affect people that are gender non-conforming and in some ways um that they may be more at risk because they're often not going to be asked about this this Mm. topic um providers may feel uncomfortable asking especially if they've not necessarily presented clearly for um you know a contraception or something people might feel uncomfortable talking about um, their relationship status and things like that such an important point and i think it you know reflects again um the fact that 
so much of this is about power, you know, your ability to negotiate contraception with a partner, your ability to um, express yourself freely, attend a clinic with or without your partner, all of that decision-making really depends on power. Um, I have thought about this before, but I kind of thought, well, you know, would this involve switching to a more discreet contraceptive method um, for, for people who have experienced like birth control tampering or other things? And it's clearly so much more complicated and nuanced than that. Yes. So um, it is much, much wider than just making uh, diverse contraceptive methods. You're absolutely right. Um, what I will say also, though, is um, often um, that can be a sign um, of reproductive coercion itself, that somebody's asking for um, a method that is concealable. You've said a couple times um, that you might ask a partner to leave the room. And I'm just imagining myself in that situation and being really nervous about that. How how would you recommend that we approach the situation of asking the partner to leave the room? Yeah, definitely. So um, for that specific um, situation, I'm really lucky in the fact that I work in an integrated sexual health service. So we do come across this situation or similar situations where sometimes partners or patients uh, might be intimidating or actually just out and out aggressive. So we do have um, healthcare assistants that can chaperone us. And, you know, it's something that quite commonly do need to have, especially because we're doing intimate examinations and things like that. So there's often another person that can provide um, some support during our consultations. In other settings, such as general practice, that can sometimes be more challenging, particularly if you're in a smaller practice because you might not have that level of support. Um, I think one thing, it is easier sometimes to, off the bat, ask to see the patient alone and just set up a general standard that that is what you do in your service. You see the patient alone for a few minutes and if they want their partner to come in or that partner, because sometimes legitimately that person might be their carer or something else, they might need that person there for some other reason. But if you set that from the beginning, then you can already ascertain the dynamic and how that person feels from the start. Fantastic. Um, Maybe we can... Uh, start to start to end a little bit just on um, your suggestions and recommendations and kind of best advice on how we can actually help someone if we've successfully um, negotiated all of these <laughs> dynamics and and have you know have the patient's trust and understanding that repro- reproductive coercion is happening what what can we do? Yeah, so I think it's um, really important to understand that um, it is like um, any other form of abuse or intimate partner violence. And often it can, as I said, come as um, one of many things um, that the person is experiencing. So it does deserve that level of seriousness. Um, And it may be the beginning of actually other forms of intimate partner violence. Um, So 
you do need to make sure that when you the person discloses this, particularly if it's something like they've been in a long-term relationship and the person is persistently making them pregnant because that also occurs at the start of contraception, that kind of thing, um, and the person has no means of getting away or something like that, that they've disclosed to you. And at that point in time, that person is actually more at risk of harm um, because they've opened up to you. And that's what we do know um, about intimate partner violence, that when they make that disclosure, they're now at more risk of further violence from their partner. So you do need to make sure that you do a proper safeguarding assessment when that disclosure is made and discuss it with safeguarding leads. Um, and if necessary, make the relevant referrals. It is important that you try to make some kind of plan. So it might be that the patient just wants to see you again um, to kind of tell you a bit more about what's going on bit by bit and maybe you can make a bit more of a detailed assessment then. Um, it may be that if they're being coerced, they can't come to clinic and they might say, I need to have a conversation or a telephone conversation mm -hmm. at these times of the day because this is when my partner's out, they're at work and just facilitating those needs. But it requires a degree of flexibility. Navjoy, have you ever seen this in practice or Tom, have you ever successfully or I don't know if successfully is the right word, but ever had a patient kind of reveal this or disclose this for you? I, I can't think that I have. And so given the rates that you've just been describing, it's making me think that maybe I haven't been alert to it. Um, I've definitely had, you know, people who have surprisingly wanted to kind of change a method of con contraception quite soon into, you know, maybe after starting a long-acting um, reversible contraceptive, which is not uncommon, I think. And often, you know, that might be, people might say, you know, it wasn't what they're expecting or the side effects or whatever, but just um, that those kinds of situations, I, I haven't really, hasn't really been on my radar mm -hmm. to think of reproductive coercion. Mm. Yeah. I, I, again, I can't think of any specific examples, but I, I, I feel like I can think back to times where I've probably seen some of the cues or, or behaviours that, that might have led me to, you know, inquire a little bit more, or and and, and then as I said, well, why, well, why didn't you, <laughs> you know? Um, and I definitely don't want to be sounding like I'm making excuses, but um, I think one part of working um, with this article was about the kind of well, what 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 do you do once you've identified that? And I think there's sometimes that sense of well, if this is a time of higher um risk for the for the woman after they've um disclosed um this you're wanting to be sure that i've i'm actually going to do help them and, and and probably put them in touch with experts who really know how to support um somebody going through through something like this yeah yeah for sure annabelle kind of made that point as well and again reflecting or, or similarly reflecting on my own practice i I just still wonder, you know, how we should, you know, incorporate this into our visits because I don't want to be asking only some people, but is this something that, you know, I don't know, should we be asking everybody? Yeah. Well, the, the interestingly, um, Annabelle and her co-authors recommend that um, practice, well, practitioners consider doing that, mm -hmm. just that is actually having a they use an example of a card it's called an archers sort of acronym which um 
but this is set questions that you ask everybody either by giving them a card before the consultation so giving permission for them to raise it with you um you know having to look for it in advance and i suppose one thing is that some women may not think that the gp or the, their practitioner wants to know or would actually have any anything they can do to help so i thought that was a really really good idea and that um it, it does normalize that this is something that, that you can talk about or that you might be asked about um one observation I had on that was I think if you're going to put this into your local practice, I think you have to think through in advance. Well, what what does the practitioner do once they've once somebody has come forward? Yeah. Because I don't think it's really you're not doing you're not doing anybody a service by then going. Oh well, I'm not quite sure what to do now because you, you need to follow through and really have some some real tangible you know action that you can offer or take um, if somebody does disclose this to you. I completely agree with you about that. So have either of you heard of a warm referral to a domestic violence or sexual assault service? It's where you, is it where you try and refer to a named person? You try and give the, you make a referral, but you give um, the your patient a, a, the name of a support worker that they can contact uh, when they're ready? Yes. Yeah, I think it's I think that's that's exactly it. Um Do you do this though? I I haven't done this before. I have done it with um domestic violence so services. I've so you give yeah. them a call and sort of explain and then because they're so experienced in this, they will offer you some options often and I I've, I've certainly been in a situation where they've said, "Okay, well this is my number. You can give this to them or if they want yeah. me to call them at a certain time." Um and I think the purpose of it is rather than saying, here's a number of, you know, a national hotline. Yeah. Which you kind of feel often like, well, I'm, you know, a bit uneasy about that. And thinking yeah. that's probably not, I probably wouldn't want to do that because you're just going to get a well, random like person. Just, mm. Yeah. Then the, then the warmth is from, you've kind of done the first step and they can right. feel more, more, um, maybe a little bit more confident mm. to, um, to know that they're speaking to someone who already knows a little bit about what what the situation is. I just want to emphasize here that all of this, you know, as we're discussing, all of this depends on those support systems existing, right? And those support Mm. workers existing. Um, You know, in New Zealand, those services were available, very clearly indicated. In the United States, those services, in my experience, are available, often over capacity, and in Cambodia, very few services were available that I knew about where you could, you know, actually have, you know, a way to help someone, even if you were to recognize, you know, um, some kind of reproductive coercion or even sexual assault. Mm. Good point. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think even in the UK, certainly underfunded and stretch the limit is is. It's probably still the case for, for most um, for most areas and most of us for our local services. Yeah. So let's move on then to um, our second interview, uh, and there is a link here, I think, to 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 what we've been talking about in terms of communication skills and and actually some of those soft skills about paying attention and listening to patients and empathy and all those things that sort of get drummed into us um, right from day one in medical school. Um, so this is. Um, Based on a, a, a column written by John Lorna, and one of his first columns for the journal was about paying attention. Um, so John is a well-known 
sort of narrative medicine guru. Um, and it was an interesting article. So we had a chat with him. But um, it's always, I was going to ask you, do you think it's important to pay attention? But um, I'm sure you'd be like, yes, Tom, yes, very important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yes, exactly. As predicted, <laughs> yes, I do think it's important to pay attention. And um, narrative medicine, I'm not sure I fully understand what narrative medicine is. Is that the importance of kind of stories in the kind of stories, I don't know, patients tell themselves or that we tell ourselves about a disease, about a presentation? I think so, yeah. I think it's seeing the the consultation through the lens, I'm going to say of um, of the of the person's story and yeah and sometimes their symptoms or um, or what they choose to do in, in, in that sense of their broader um, story. Yeah, I think that can be very powerful. Yeah. So um, anyway, should we just have a listen to what what John said and then uh, we can have a chat about it afterwards? Sounds good. Uh, and so that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medical legal advice, including 24 seven in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. So let's go back to that interview with John Dorner about paying attention. My name is John Lorna and I'm a GP educator working one day a week for Health Education England but the rest of the week as a freelance educator and writer. And recently uh, one of our new, or the BMJ's new new columnists. Indeed and delighted to be one. And, uh, and so that's what we want to talk about because one of your first columns was this one called uh, The Art of Paying Attention which um, had a number of points before. It'd be really good just to kind of speak a bit more about these. So um, if you can tell me first a little bit about this, this isn't, isn't just about listening to the patient and making a diagnosis. I presume, you know, well, it is something more, more than that. Indeed. Well, uh, I have a very strong interest in the field called narrative medicine and a great deal of my educational work consists of helping people to listen very closely to what other people are saying whether it's patients or colleagues or teams, um, actually to, play, to pay close attention in exactly the same way that a literary scholar would to a written text. That's the general idea. Okay, okay. So there's a, yes, when you're reading a, a, a ingenious piece of work, you're, you can pick, a, pick at it and find all sorts of different meanings and uh, 
things in, in and you, you find that in a consultation to, uh, can, can you give us some examples to perhaps to illustrate that well, the classic thing is that um, doctors in particular tend to go for words like blood and pain and they ignore the rest of the narrative as if it's of no consequence but it's often of huge consequence to the person who's telling their story and the example I give in the article is somebody might say my headaches are driving me to despair and, and the doctors say okay you know tell me about the headaches how often how long what brings them on all of that traditional clerking stuff and they forget that the patients actually use the word despair but it might be a quite significant word I mean either consciously or unconsciously the patient may be flagging up all kinds of contextual issues in their lives which you know may help with the diagnosis because it's what contributing to the headaches or even if they don't actually ignoring that element of the narrative um, often feels them leaves them feeling unrecognized okay and so in that example then I, obviously we're, we're different in every consultation and you, you make your choices about which words you pick up on and when but um, is that where you might be tempted to to pause and, and ask more about despair I mean how would you do that in a consultation uh, I might simply say, oh, I'm interested you use the word despair and leave it at that. And they might pick it up or they might say, well, I'm exaggerating or whatever. But you don't ignore the cue. I think the what I try to teach health professionals generally is that we make our own choice of cues. But to some extent, those cues are driven by our mindset as doctors. And we may therefore ignore cues which have far greater weight for the patient or the colleague or whoever's talking to us. Mm. So that's the the bit in the article where you say so noticing the words we usually ignore. Um, and uh, what about taking the temperature of the conversation? Is is that the same thing, or is that something a little bit different? That's that's different. That's what I refer to in the article as meta questions, and it's really saying how are we doing? Mm. Actually, uh, doctors again are not generally trained to stand above the conversation so I can take a helicopter view if you could call it that and say you know how is this consultation going you you had a load of questions at the beginning of this consultation mm. have I answered all of them uh, are we achieving what you hope to achieve from this conversation or are there things still missing you know if we've got only three minutes left what do we absolutely need to cover in that time interestingly coaches counsellors therapists are often taught these techniques doctors are usually not either at medical school or subsequently and part of my educational work is helping people do exactly that. Uh, is that a bit similar to the, um, I remember this paper in the BJGP from Roger Neighbour, the, the five cards and um, one is the su summarising and I, I often yes. find myself doing that. Yes. yes, I think he calls it housekeeping. Yeah. I, I don't particularly use that word but it it, it it's, it's one way of doing meta questions, except in that case, housekeeping is all done at the end right. in the model, whereas I would tend to do it quite often, maybe every couple of minutes during conversation. You know, are we going the right direction for you? Otherwise, you never know if mm. you've randomly chosen a trajectory to go down in the conversation that doesn't meet the other person's wishes at all. Yeah, yeah. OK. And... Um... I think at the start of the article, you, you did, um, you know, you talk about compassion and, and empathy and uh, I suppose we hear a lot about them and perhaps less about the things we've just been talking about. Yeah. But um, you, you, you're saying you're not so sure about teaching empathy and compassion. Is that 
Yes, my reservation about it, and it's why I opened the article, is that, that I think it's very hard to teach feelings. You can't tell somebody how to feel. I mean, classically, you know, if somebody isn't feeling the prescribed kind of grief at the right stage of their bereavement, you can't tell them they'll feel this or that. And I, I feel the same in relation to empathy and compassion, that you can't teach somebody how to feel. But interestingly, since I wrote the article, I have had some responses from people who do teach empathy and compassion. And we've exchanged uh, emails and information about our different ways of teaching. And interestingly, I find that what they teach is closer to teaching attentiveness and to narrative medicine than I imagined, because actually they don't try and teach people what to feel. They try and teach people beha people behaviours, what to say, what to do, what to show, which in a way is very close to what we do, except we're probably aiming at the same things, which is, of course, you would like practitioners to feel empathy and compassion. What about narrative medicine? I, I, I'm not a... Um... I'm not very good at reading up on these things, so I, I <laughs> but I'm interested in the term. I kind of get a sense of that this is about yeah. stories and, um, yeah. you know, maybe looking at a consultation as a story rather than a kind of medical clerking. Is that is that where we yes. are with that? Can you tell me more more about? I think that? that's absolutely right. It, um, narrative goes alongside every other approach to medicine including evidence-based medicine and scientific approaches and what you have to do because of the guidelines and so forth but what it what it teaches really is that finding a solution to the problem often isn't all that's needed what you also need to do is you need to find a resolution to the puzzle or the dilemma or the problem that is embedded in the story so somebody needs to go away with an understanding, with a sense of meaning, with an account of their encounter with you that makes sense to them. It isn't just, well, the doctor gave me these pills, said they'd help. I don't know if they will or not. Didn't really understand how they would work. Or you, know, you don't want the person going away with a narrative that is as full of puzzles and confusion as the narrative they came in with you want some kind of resolution as well as a solution mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay and so that's why if you're if you're a good good storyteller yourself as, as a as the doctor I, I i work with people who are much better at this than me and can really kind of i think offer a, a story a narrative a story about the symptoms which makes huge sense to the, the patient I, i'm always a bit unsure about how far you go with that because our own uncertainty is often very high and you're at risk yes. of overdoing it, I think. I don't think it's necessarily a matter of providing them with explanations, but it's helping them put together the story in their own head to put mm. together a story. You know, you might give part of an explanation. They might say, well, that's interesting because my uncle had something like that. And then they'll tell the story of their uncle and you draw on that. And you use that to consolidate their understanding of what they've got. So it's very much, a, you know, to use a bit of jargon, it's co-constructing the narrative. You put in a thread, they put in a thread. I often use the metaphor of weaving a tapestry rather than digging a hole to find out what's at the bottom of things. You know, it, m most stuff that doctors, particularly GPs, deal with isn't really a thing. And even if it's a thing, it doesn't have a bottom it's much more like a kind of tapestry of meaning that we're, we're weaving together with the other person. I, I like that. That's great. <laughs> um, it reminds me, we, we had um, Susanna Sullivan. We interviewed her um, 
uh, when was that? Probably about a year ago now. And it feels like there's a there's a link there with at a society level, like the stories. Absolutely. Uh, Jerome Bruner, who was a very famous American psychologist, said to be in a culture is to live in a set of interconnecting stories. One of my regular quotes. And the, the other is the philosopher Charles Taylor. He said, we live inescapably, we live inescapably in narrative. Although I might have got that one slightly wrong. Uh, maybe he said we, we understand ourselves inescapably in narrative. I think it was the latter. Certainly things you want to kind of pick up there. I, I just thought, going back right back to the start, thinking of it like a, you know, those English, um, was it English literature, English language, the GCSE, where you had to like read a passage and then like answer some questions about about the words. I think thinking about <laughs> consultations <laughs> like that was, um, appeals to me, probably not to most people, I guess. What, just underlining particular words in re- in real time with the patient in front of you, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that, that the uh, I mean the example that um, he used of you know I've got a headache that's driving me to despair or, or whatever it was I I can totally see myself honing in on oh headache okay I better go down my headache kind of clerking path or whatever and ask questions about that and completely ignore that really valuable <laughs> um, piece of information about the impact it's actually having on the patient so. Um, Yes, lots, lots to kind of take away from that. And and just a useful reminder. I think a lot of this, I think, as you alluded to at the beginning, it's stuff that we know. And I think that from the times that we are able to, you know, ask the meta questions and where we are, you know, a, a bit more, maybe a bit less tired and can kind of recognise that someone's sort of used a word that might be important. Um, and, you know, we follow that up. I think it, it often is valuable to do those things. It's just, um, for me, I find it's just so dependent on where I'm at in a partic- on a given day in a particular surgery um, and on the, probably on the, sorry to say, on the patient in front of me as well, you know, how there, there are many variables involved, but at my best, I, I do aspire to to doing that and I can totally see the value in it. I I completely agree. Um, One of my advisors during residency um, is a professor of narrative medicine. And sometimes he would observe patient encounters that I was conducting. And um, he would say, you know, you need to be more curious. You know, when people say that their job is X or their kids are Y, you know, like, be curious about that. And I was like, I don't want to. <laughs> I'm thinking about the three other patients waiting for me and I'm watching those little dots arrive on my screen indicating more people are waiting. <laughs> In New Zealand, when a new patient would arrive and they were kind of ready to be seen, a counter would stop. So you could always oh see gosh. how many minutes they had been waiting for you. And it's like, I, I cannot be curious with a counter. Yeah, <laughs> We have the same on, on your electronic notes. You know, you can see how long everyone's waiting and you can sort of you go out to get your next patient and all the patients are asking reception how long it's been. <laughs> you think oh gosh I've probably been a bit too curious or something, something's not going right but I agree that ideally you would say despair and I appreciated John's suggestion to leave it at that right like to observe as opposed to ask right like you use the word despair yeah 
Yeah. When it goes well, though, it does. It, it, it is a shortcut, isn't it? Because actually, you get onto what the the, the real problem, so to speak, mm-hmm. is, or yeah. or as soon as the patient feels listened to and that you understand their problem, then um, it's actually easier to <laughs> to yeah. finish the consultation. You're Everything not left. Feels much more aligned yeah. and kind of yeah. yeah. You know, it does kind of make me reflect on the conversation I had with Annabelle as well. You know, just maybe being a little bit more curious or maybe, you know, kind of trying to put the waiting, the people waiting to the side and just kind of observe a little bit more uh, in patient encounters and thinking a little bit more about, you know, what's going on in their relationships, for example. Um, I also wanted to bring up an essay that was included in uh, the 2022 Christmas issue of the BMJ um, by Dominique Allwood and Victor Montori about the kind of industrialization of healthcare. And they use that term to mean the way that in trying to make our care more efficient, um, medicine has essentially become like an assembly line where the individual features of patients kind of blur a little bit and healthcare workers in that analogy become the assembly line workers. And we, you know, one line from the paper that really resonated with me is that just by reading somebody's electronic health record, we assume that we know them. Um, And and so this really, uh, this conversation with John really uh, makes that kind of clear and that actually sometimes just you know, taking the time to notice those individual features of of what people say in the middle of a consultation can maybe help, like, rehumanize them or make them more like individual patients again. Um, but anyway, I thought that was was a nice kind of uh, nexus here, and we'll link to that paper in the show notes. And I also wanted to say that Victor Montori is a co-author on a recent analysis paper looking at the time needed for clinicians to implement various practice guidelines. And we'll be talking about that in a future episode of Deep Breath In. And that's probably a good place to leave this episode on that teaser, Jenny. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, with another episode of Deep Breath In. Uh, Thank you to our guests today, uh, Annabelle and John. And thank you to Navjoit. Thanks very much. See you next time. (laughs) See you next time. And Jenny. Thanks, Tom. See you next time. I hope you're enjoying Deep Breath In. Uh, Do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, Rate us. Email us. uh, Practice at bmj.com. And just tell, tell your colleagues as well. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye for now.